9. K. Geography had made this the starting point of its shorter and continental measurements for the length of the habitable world, and the Genoese, whose policy was to buy up points of vantage on every coast, were eager to plant a colony there, but Portugal was not ready to become like the Byzantine Empire, a depot for Italian commerce, and Henry had his own reasons for securing a desolate promontory, on this he now built himself a palace, a chapel, a study, an observatory the earliest in Portugal and a village for his helpers and attendants. In his wish to gain a prosperous result for his efforts, the prince devoted great industry and thought to the matter, and at great expense procured the aid of one master Jacum from Majorca, a man skilled in the art of navigation and in the making of maps and instruments, and who was sent for, with certain of the Arab and Jewish mathematicians, to instruct the Portuguese in that science. So at least, says de Barros, the Libby of Portugal, that Sagres was thus founded into the systematic study of applied science in Christendom, it was better than the work of the old Greek university at Alexandria with which it has been compared, because it was essentially practical. From it, our sailors, says Pedro Nunes, went out well taught and provided with instruments and rules which all map makers should know. We would gladly know more of Henry's scientific work, a good many legends have grown up about it and even his foundation of the chair of mathematics in the University of Lisbon or Coimbra, our best evidence of the unrecorded work of his school, has been doubted by some modern critics, even by the national historian, Alexander Herculano, but to Prince Henry's study and science two great improvements on this side may be traced, first in the art of map-making, secondly in the building of caravels and ocean craft, the great Venetian map of Fra Moro of the Camaldolese convent of Murano, finished in 1459, one year before the navigator's death, is evidence for the one, Cadamosto's words, as a practical seaman, of Italian birth, in Henry's service, that the, caravels of Portugal were the best sailing ships afloat, may be proved sufficient of the other, on both these lines, Henry took up the results of Italians and worked towards success with their aid, as Columbus and the Cabots and Verrazano in later times represented the intellectual leadership of Italy to other nations Spain, England, and France, but had to find their career and resources not in their own commercial republics, but at the courts of the new centralized kingdoms of the West, where a paternal despotism gave the best hope of guiding any popular movement, social or religious or political or scientific. So in the earlier 15th century, mariners like Gutimosto and Dinoli, Scientific draftsmen like Fra Moro and Andrea Biotico, looked from Venice and Genoa to the court of Sagres and to the service of Prince Henry as their proper sphere, where they would find the encouragement and reward they sought for at home and often sought in vain. Henry's settlement on Cape Street Vincent was not long without results. The voyage of his captain, John de Trusto, to the fruitful district of Gran Canary in 1415 was not in any sense a discovery as the conquest of John de Betancourt in 1402 had made these fortunate islands perfectly well known, but the finding of Porto Santo and Madeira in 1418-20 was a real gain, for the machine story of the English landing in Madeira was a close secret, which by good fortune passed into the prince's keeping, but not beyond, so that as far as general knowledge went, the Portuguese were now fairly embarked upon the Sea of Darkness. First came the sighting of the Holy Haven in 1418. In this year, says Azurara, two squires of the prince's household, named John Gonçalves Zarco and Tristan Vez, eager for renown and anxious to serve their lord, had set out to explore as far as the coast of Guinea, 
but they were caught by a storm near Lagos and driven to the island of Porto Santo. This name they gave themselves at this very time in their joy at thus escaping the perils of the tempest. Zarco and Vez returned in triumph to Sagres and reported the newfound island to be well worth the permanent settlement. Henry, always generous, took up the idea with great interest and sent out Zarco and Vez with another of his equerries, one Bartholomew Perestrello, to Colonias, with two ships and products for a new country, corn, honey, the sugar cane from Sicily, the Malvoisy grape from Crete, even the rabbit from Portugal. On his first return voyage Zarco had captured the pilot Morales of Seville, and from him the prince had gained certain news of the English landing in Madeira, so it was with a definite purpose of further discovery that his captains returned to Porto Santo in 1420, with Morales as their guide. Now, as before, Zarco appears as chief in command, he had won himself a name at Ceuta, and if the tradition be true, had just brought in the first use of ship artillery. The finding of Porto Santo was mainly credited to him. Sailing from Lagos in June, 1420, he had no sooner reached once again the fair haven of his first success, than he was called to note a dark line, like a mark of distant land, upon the southwest horizon. The colonists he had left on his earlier visit had watched this day by day till they had made certain of its being something more than a passing appearance of sea or sky, and Morales was ready with his suggestion that this was Machines Island. The fog that hung over this part of the ocean would be natural to a thick and dank woodland like that on the island of his old adventure. Zarka resolved to try, after eight days rest in Porto Santo he set sail, and, observing that the fog grew less toward the east of the cloud bank, made for that point and came upon a low marshy cape, which he called St. Lawrence Head. Then, creeping round the south coast, he came to the highlands and the forests of Madeira, so named here and now either as de Barros says, from the thick woods they found there, or, in the form of Mexico, from the first discoverer, luckless Robert Machine, for on landing the Portuguese, guided by Morales, soon found the wooden cross and grave of the Englishman and his mistress, and it was there that Zarco, with no human being to dispute his title, took season of the island in the name of King John, Prince Henry, and the Order of Christ, embarking once more, he then coasted slowly round from the River of the Flint to Jackdaw Point, and the Chamber of the Wolves, where his men started a herd of sea calves. So he came to the vast plain overgrown with fennel or funchal, where the chief town of after days grew up. A party sent inland to explore, reported that on every side the ocean could be seen from the hills, and Zarco, after taking in some specimens of the native wood and plants and birds at Funchal, put back in the last days of August to Portugal. He was splendidly received at court, made a count, count of the chamber of the wolves, and granted the command of the island for his own life. A little later, the commandership was made hereditary in his family. Tristam Vez, the second in the prince's commission, was rewarded too, the northern half of Madeira was given him as a captain key, and in 1425 Henry began to colonize in form. Zarco, as early as May, 1421 had returned with wife and children and attendants, and begun to build the port of Mexico, and the city of Funchal, but this did not become a state affair until four years more had gone by, but from the first, the island, by its export of wood and dragon's blood and wheat, began to reward the trouble of discovery and settlement, sugar and wine were brought to perfection in later years, after the great, seven years fire, had burnt down the forests and enriched the soil of Madeira, 
It was soon after Zarko's return to Funchal that he first set fire to the woods behind the fennel fields of the coast. To clear himself away through the undergrowth into the heart of the island, the fire blazed and smoldered till it had taken well hold of the entire mass of timber that covered the upper country. Nothing in the feeble resources of the first settlers could stop it, and Madeira lighted the ships of Henry on their way to the south, like a volcano, till 1428. This was at least the common story as told in Portugal, and it was often joined with another of the rabbit plague, which ate up all the green stuff of the island in the first struggling years of Zarco's settlement, and so prevented the export of anything but timber. So much of this was brought into Portugal that Henry's lifetime is a landmark in the domestic architecture of Spain, and from the trade of the wood island is derived the lofty style of building that now began to replace the more modest fashion of the Arabs. A charter of Henry's, dated 1430, ten years after the rediscovery of Madeira, and reciting the names of some of the first settlers, and his bequest of the island, or rather of its spiritualities, to the order of Christ on September 18th. 1460, just before his death, are the chief links between this colony and the home country in the next generation but in the history of institutions there are few more curious facts than the insistence of the prince on a census for his little nation. From the first, the family registers of the colonists were carefully kept, and from these we see something of the wonder of men who were beginning human life, as it were, in a new land, the first children born in Madeira son and daughter of heirs Ferreira. One of Zarco's comrades were christened Adam and Eve. Footnote 36, in 1418 and 1424 5 Henry purchased and tried to secure certain rights of possession in the Canaries, conceded by the Betancourt, and these attempts were repeated in 1445 and 1446. Chapter X Cape Beale J. Adier and the Azores, 1428-1441. But in spite of Zarco's success, Cape Bajanar had not yet been passed, though every year, from 1418, Carabels had left Sagres, to find the coasts of Guinea, in 1428, Don Pedro, Henry's elder brother, had come home from his travels, with all the books and charts he had collected to help the explorers and it is practically certain that the map Mundi given him in Venice acted as a direct suggestion to the next attempts on west and southwestward to the Azores, southward towards Guinea, kept in the royal monastery of Alcabaca till late in the 16th century. Though now irrecoverably lost, this treasure of Don Pedro's, like his manuscripts of travel, would seem to have been used at the Sagre school till Prince Henry's death, and at least as early as 1431 its effect was seen in the first Portuguese recovery of the Azores, all the West African islands, plainly enough described in the map of 1428, were half within, half without the knowledge of Christendom, ever and anon being brought back or rediscovered by some accident or enterprise and then being lost to sight and memory through the want of systematic exploration. This was exactly what the Portuguese supplied. The Azores, marked on the Laurentian Portulano of 1451, were practically unknown to seamen when, after 80 years had passed, Gonzalo Cabral was sent out from Sagres to find them 1431. He reached the Formiga group the Ant Islands, and next year 1432 returned to make further discoveries, chiefly of the island Santa Maria but the more important advances on the side were made between 1444-50, after the first colony had been planted 12 or 14 years, and were the result of the prince's theoretical correction of his captain's practical oversight. From a comparison of old maps and descriptions with their accounts, he was able to correct their line of sail and so to direct them to the very islands they had searched for in vain. 
but as yet these results were far distant, and the slow and sure progress of African coasting towards Cape Bajadar was the chief outcome of Pedro's help, in 1430, 1431, and 1432, the infant urged upon his captains the paramount importance of rounding the Cape, which had baffled all his caravels by its strong ocean currents and dangerous rocks, at last this became the prince's one command, pass the Cape if you do nothing beyond, yet the years went by, King John of good memory died in 1433, and Gilles, sent out in the same year with strong hopes of success, turned aside at the Canaries and only brought a few slaves back to Portugal, a large party at court, in the army, and among the nobles and merchant classes, complained bitterly of the utter want of profit from Henry's schemes, and there was at this time a danger of the collapse of his movement, for though as yet he paid his own expenses, his treasury could not long have stood the drain without any incoming, Bajadar, the paunch, or bulging cape, 180 miles beyond Cape Non, had been, since the days of the Laurentian Portulano 1451, and the Catalan and Portuguese voyages of 1441 and 1446, the southmost point of Christian knowledge, a long circuit was needed here, as at the Cape of Good Hope, to around a promontory that stretched, men said, fully 100 miles into the ocean, where tides and shoals formed a current 20 miles across, it was the sight or the fancy of this furious search which frightened Henry's crews, for it plainly forbade all coasting and compelled the seamen to strike into the open sea out of sight of land, and though the discovery of Porto Santo had proved the feasibility and the gain of venturing boldly into the sea of darkness, and though since that time 1418 the prince had sent out his captains to west to the Azores and southwest to Madeira, both hundreds of miles from the continent, yet in rounding Dodgeander there were not only the real terrors of the Atlantic, but the legends of the tropics to frighten back the boldest. Most mariners had heard it said that any Christian who passed Dodgeander would infallibly be changed into a black, and would carry to his end this mark of God's vengeance on his insolent prying. The Arab tradition of the Green Sea of Night had too strongly taken hold of Christian thought to be easily shaken off, and it was beyond the Cape which bounded their knowledge that the Saracen geographers had fringed the coast of Africa with sea monsters and serpent rocks and water unicorns, instead of place names, and had drawn the horrible giant hand of Satan raised above the waves to seize the first of his human prey that would venture into his den, if God made the firm earth. The devil made the unknown and treacherous ocean this was the real lesson of most of the medieval maps, and it was this ingrained superstition that Henry found his worst enemy, appearing as it did sometimes even in his most trusted and daring captains, and then again, the legends of tropical Africa, of the mainland beyond Bajadar, were hardly less terrible than those of the tropical ocean, the dark continent, with its surrounding sea of darkness, was the home of mystery and legend. We have seen how ready the Arabs were to write an inhabitable over any unknown country dark seas and lands were simply those that were dark to them, like the dark ages to others, but nowhere did their imagination revel in genies and fairies and magicians and all the horrors of hell, with more enthusiastic and genial interest than in Africa, here only the northern parts could be lived in by man, in the south and central deserts, as we had heard from the Moslem doctors themselves. The sun poured down sheets of liquid flame upon the ground and kept the sea and the rivers boiling day and night with the fiery heat. So any sailors would of course be boiled alive as soon as they got near to the torrid zone. It was this kind of learning, discredited but not forgotten, that was still in the minds of Gilles and his friends when they came home in 1433, with lame excuses, to Henry's court. The currents and south winds had stopped them, they said, 
it was impossible to get round Bajadar. The prince was roused. He ordered the same captain to return next year and try the cape again. His men ought to have learned something better than the childish fables of past time. And if, said he, there were even any truth in these stories that they tell, I would not blame you. But you come to me with the tales of four seamen who perhaps know the voyage to the low countries or some other coasting route. But, except for this, don't know how to use needle or sailing chart. Go out again and heed them not. For by God's help, fame and profit must come from your voyage, if you will but persevere. The prince was backed by the warm encouragement of the new king, Edward, his eldest brother, who had only been one month upon the throne when he bestirred himself to show his favor to a national movement of discovery. King John had died on August 14, 1433 the anniversary of Algebarota, and on September 26, of the same year, by a charter given from Sintra, King Edward granted the islands of Madeira and Porto Santo, with the deserters, to Henry as Grand Master of the Order of Christ. With this encouragement the infant sent out Gillines in 1434 under the strongest charge not to return without a good account of the Cape and the seas beyond, running far out into the open, his caravel doubled Bajander, and coming back to the coast found the sea as easy to sail in as the waters at home, and the land very rich and pleasant. They landed and discovered no trace of men or houses, but gathered plants, such as were called in Portugal Street Mary's Roses, to present to Don Henry. Not even the southern Cape of Tempests or Good Hope was so long and obstinate a barrier as Bajanter had been, and the passing of this difficulty proved the salvation of the prince's schemes, though again and again interrupted by political troubles between 1437 and 1449. The advance at sea went on, and never again was there a serious danger of the failure of the whole movement through general opposition and discontent. In 1435 Gillines was sent out again to follow up his success with Afonso Baldea, the prince's cupbearer, in a larger vessel than had yet been risked in exploration, called a Varinal, or Ord Valley. The two captains passed 50 leagues 150 miles beyond the Cape, and found traces of caravans, reached as far as an inlet they named Gurnet Bay, from its shoals of fish, and again put back to Alagos, early in the year. There were still several months left for ocean sailing in 1435, and Henry at once dispatched Balde again in his varinal, with orders to go as far as he could along the coast, at least till he could find some natives, one of these he was to bring home with him. Balde accordingly sailed 130 leagues 390 miles beyond Cape Bajander, till he reached an estuary running some 20 miles up the country and promising to a league to a great river. This might prove to be the western Nile of the Negroes, or the famous river of gold, Baldea thought, and though it proved to be only an inlet of the sea, the name of Rio Daura, then given by the first hopes of the Portuguese, has outlasted the disappointment that found only a sandy reach instead of a waterway to the mountains of the moon and the kingdom of Priester John, Baldea anchored here, landed a couple of horses which the infant had given him to scour the country and set two young noble gentlemen upon them to ride up country, to look for signs of natives, and if possible to bring back one captive to the ship, taking no body armor, but only lance and sword. The boys followed the river to its source, seven leagues up the country, and here came suddenly upon nineteen savages, armed with a segais. They rode up to them and drove them out of the open up to a loose mound of stones, then as evening was coming on and they could not secure a prisoner. They rode back to the sea and reached the ship about the dawn of day. And of these boys, says the chronicler, I myself knew one, 
when he was a noble gentleman of good renown in arms. His name was Hector Homan, and you will find him in our history well proved in brave deeds. The other, named Lopez Dalmida, was a nobleman of good presence, as I had heard from those who knew him. This first landing of Europeans on the coasts of unknown Africa, since the days of Carthaginian colonies, is one of the great moments in the story of Western expansion and discovery, for it means that Christendom on her western side has at last got beyond the first circle of her enemies, the belt of settled Muslim ground, and has begun to touch the wider world outside, on the shore of the ocean as well as along the eastern trade routes, and it almost seemed to be of little practical value that Marco Polo and the friars and traders who followed him had passed Islam in Asia, and reached even furthest Tartary for it only made more clear that Asia was not Christian, and that there would have to be a deadly struggle before European influence could be restored on the side to what it had been under Alexander, but on the west, by the Atlantic coasts, once Morocco had been passed, there were only scattered savage tribes to be dealt with, Baldea had now reached the pagans beyond Islam, the rival civilization of the Arabs and their converts had been almost outflanked by Don Henry's ships, and the boys who rode up the Rio Dauraba each in 1435 were the first pickets of a great army. Their charge upon a body of grown men ten times their number, was a prophecy of the coming conquests of Christian Europe in the new worlds it was now in search of, in south and east and west. Now Baldea instantly followed up his pioneers. He took a party in his ship's boat and rode up the stream to the scene of the fight, with the boys on horseback riding by the bank and showing him the stone heap where the natives had rallied on the day before but in the night they had all fled farther up country, leaving most of their miserable goods behind. All these were carried off, and the Portuguese left the Bay of the Horses, as they called this farthest reach of the Rio Daura, and pulled back to the Varinal, without any further success than a wholesome disappointment. They must go farther southward if they were to find the western Nile and the way round Africa. Still Baldea was not content. He wished to carry back a prisoner, as Henry had charged him and so he coasted along fifty leagues more, from the Rio Daura to the port of Delhi, a rock that looked like a galley, where there was a more prominent headland than he had passed since Bajadar. Here he landed once again, and found some native nets, made of the bark of trees, but none of the natives who made them. In the early months of 1436 he and his varinal were again in Portuguese waters, but the land had now been touched that lay three hundred miles beyond the old African Finisterre and in two years 1434-6 Portugal and all the Christian nations, through Henry's work, had entered on a new chapter of history. The narrower world of the Roman Empire and the medieval church was already growing into the modern globe in the breakup of that old terror of the sea which had so long fixed for men the bounds that they must not pass. The land routes had been cleared to a western knowledge, though not mastered, by the Crusades, now the far more dreaded and unknown waterway was fairly entered. For up to this time there is no fair evidence that either Christian or Moorish enterprise had ever rounded Bajadar, and the theoretical marking of it upon maps was a very different thing from the experience that it was just like any other cape, and no more an end of the world than Cape Street Vincent itself. Neither Genoese, nor Catalans, nor Normans of Dieppe, nor the Arab wanderers of Idrisi and Ibn Said were before Don Henry now. His discoveries of the Atlantic Islands were findings, rediscoveries. His coast voyages from the year 1433 are all ventures in the true unknown, but from 1436 to 1441, from Baldea's second return to the start of Nuno Tristam and Andam Gonçalves for Cape Blanco, exploration was not successful or energetic, 
The simple cause of this was the infants of their business. In these years took place the fatal attempt on Tangier, the death of King Edward, and the troubles of the minority of his child, Afonso the Afonso the African conqueror of later years. True in Ireland we read in our chronicle of the discovery of Guinea, that in these years there went to those parts two ships, one at a time, but the first turned back in the face of bad weather, and the other only went to the Rio Daura for the skins and oil of sea wolves, and after taking in a cargo of these, went back to Portugal, and true in Ireland too, that in the year 1440 there were armed and sent out to Carabels to go to that same land, but in that they met with contrary fortune, we do not tell any more of their voyage. Chapters I. Henry's Political Life. 1433-1441. The prince's exile from politics in his hermitage at Sagres could not be absolutely unbroken. He was ready to come back to court and to the battlefield when he was needed. So he appeared at the deathbed of his father in 1433 and of his brother in 1438, at the siege of Tangier in 1437, and during the first years of the regency 1438-40 he helped to govern for his nephew. Edward's son Afonso. From 1436 till 1441 he did not seriously turn his attention back to discovery. What is chiefly interesting in the story of these years is the half-religious reverence paid to Henry by his brothers, by Cortes, and the whole people. He was above and beyond his age, but not so much as to be beyond its understanding. He was not a leader where there are no followers, he was one of the fortunate beings who are most valued by those who have lived on the closest terms with them my father and my brothers. It was believed throughout the kingdom that King John's last words were an encouragement to the infant to persevere in his right laudable purpose of spreading the Christian faith in the lands of darkness, whether true or not. At any rate it was felt to fit the place and the man, and Henry's brothers, Pedro and Edward, took up loyally their father's commission to keep peace at home and sailing ships on the sea. But the new reign was short and full of trouble. King Edward had scarcely been crowned when the scheme of an African war was revived by Don Ferdinand, the fourth of the famous infants of the House of Aveis 1433. Ferdinand, always a crusader at heart, had refused a cardinal's help, that he might keep his strength for killing the enemies of Christ, and in Henry he found a ready listener. It was the navigator, in fact, who planned and organized the scheme of campaign now pressed upon the king and the country. It was perfectly natural that he should do so. The War of Zuta had been of the first importance to his work of discovery, it had been largely his own achievement, and his wish to conquer heathens and Saracens and to make good Christians of them was hardly less strong than his natural bent for discovery and exploring settlement. He now took up Ferdinand's suggestion, made of it a definite project for a storm of Tangier and run the reluctant consent from Edward and from Cortes. The chief hindrance was lack of money, even the popularity of the government could not prevent sore grudging and murmuring among the people. Don Pedro himself was against the whole plan, and from respect to his wishes the question was referred to the Pope. Are we to make war on the infidels or no? If the infidels in question, answered the Curia, were in Christian land and used Christian churches as mosques of Mohammed, or if they made incursions upon Christians, though always returning to their own land, or if doing none of these things they were idolars or sinned against nature, the princes of Portugal would do right to a levy war upon them, but this should be done with prudence and piety, lest the people of Christ should suffer loss. Further, it was only just to tax a Christian people for support of an infidel war, when the said war was of necessity in defense of the kingdom, if the war was voluntary, for the conquering of fresh lands from the heathen, it could only be waged at the king's own cost. 
but before this answer arrived, the armament had been made ready, and things had gone too far to draw back, the queen was eager for the war, and had brought King Edward to a more willing consent, so in the face of bad omens, an illness of Prince Ferdinand's, and the warning words of Don Pedro, the troops were put on board ship, August 17, 1437, on August 22 did they set sail, and on the 26th landed at Ceuta, where Menezes still commanded, the European triumphs of 1415 and 1418 were still fresh in the memories of the Moors, and Don Henry was remembered as their hero, so it was to him that the tribes of the Benningham sent offers of submission and tribute on the first news of the invasion, the prince accepted their presents of gold and silver, cattle and wood, and left them in peace during the war, for the forces he had with him were barely sufficient for the siege of Tangier, out of 14,000 men levied in Portugal, only 6,000 answered the roll call in Ceuta, a great number had shirked the dangers of Africa, and the room on shipboard had in itself been absurdly insufficient, the transports provided were just enough for the battalions that actually crossed, and for a fresh supply they must be sent back to Lisbon, in the council of war most were agreed upon this as the best thing on paper, but the practical difficulties were so great that Henry decided not to await for reinforcements, but to push forward with the troops in hand, the direct road to Tangier by way of Shimra was now found impassable, and it was determined to march the army round by Tichuan, while the fleet was brought up along the coast, Ferdinand, who was still suffering and unequal to the land journey, was to go by sea, while his elder brother, as chief captain of the whole armament, undertook to force his way along the inland routes, in this he was successful, in three days he came before Tichuan, which opened its gates at once, and on September 23d, without losing a single man, he appeared before old Tangier, where Ferdinand was already waiting his arrival, a rumor was now spread that the Moors were flying from Tangier as they had fled from Ceuta Castle to and twenty years before, but Zilla Ben Zilla, who commanded here as he had done there, now knew better how to defend a town, with the desperate courage of his Spanish foes, the attack instantly ordered by Henry on the gates of Tangier was roughly repulsed, and for the next fortnight the losses of the crusaders were so heavy that the siege was turned into a blockade, on September 30th, 10.000 horse and 90.000 foot came down from the upland to the coast for the relief of Tangier, Henry promptly led his little army into the open and ordered an attack, and the vast Moorish host which had taken up its station on a hill within sight of the camp, not daring to accept the challenge, wavered, broke, and rushed headlong to the mountains, but after three days they reappeared in greater numbers and even vent, 